praise you, we worship you for who you are and all that you've done for us. We desire to be, Lord Jesus, transformed into your most perfect and beautiful image. We want to be like you. We ask for your power and help to think like you, act like you, speak like you, uh, so that others are helped by you in our circle of relationships. Holy Spirit, uh, would you empower us to, to do these disciple best practices that we are looking at today? We can't do it in our own strengths, and so we need your help and power and grace uh, to use us despite uh, ourselves. Uh, Lord, I pray that every word I say today would be from you and for you. Holy Spirit, we want you to be front and center, so more of you and less of me, less of us. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Today we're simply continuing our current sermon series. It is entitled uh, The Pathway to Christian Discipleship, and not unlike how you use a phone for a navigational device, Google Maps, uh, Waze is a very popular navigational app you might have on your phone, and the whole way in which you use your navigational app is you have your, your starting point, you have your destination where you want to go, and essentially the app just kind of carries you from one place to the other, and that's essentially what uh, Christ, uh, pe- uh, Discipleship Pathway does. It shows you where you begin, it shows the destination, which is heaven, and essentially the process of transformation that is to occur in you and I as followers and disciples of Jesus in that process. It really is all about us being changed, molded, formed to look like, sound like, act like, emote like, be motivated like our Lord Jesus, who himself is the greatest, most beautiful, most person in the universe. And he's given us a mission, which is to help as many people as possible join the family of God and experience the same transformation in their lives as well. The first week we looked at defining what is a disciple of Jesus, and we discovered a disciple of Jesus is simply an apprentice of Jesus, an intern, a learner, a student of Jesus, of his ways, and and how to become more like Jesus. And so that was the definition of discipleship. Then last Sunday we examined disciple disciplines. These are otherwise known as spiritual disciplines. I'd much rather call them habits of grace Uh, They're basically just habits of just opening up the channel to receive more help and power and blessing from God so that we can live the life of Jesus. And the habits of grace are namely personal prayer. They are Bible reading and Bible intake personally, you initiating this on a regular basis, if not daily. And the last habit of grace is uh, church involvement and participation in the life of a local church. I don't know how many Christians I've encountered here in the lower, lower mainland who like to be independent Christians, and they, 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 they don't like the church anymore because something there's a little fight or something going on, something the pastor said, you know, and then they're, they're off and running, doing their own thing. But life as a Christian, as a disciple of Jesus, was never designed for, you, is for, you, for it to be you and Jesus alone. It's you, Jesus, and your church family, okay? And that's essential to what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. Today is part three, and we are examining uh, disciple best practices. Disciple best practices. Now, you may have heard this term, best practices, in various spots in your life. Very often, it's connected to a business and the workplace. And one article I found that described uh, best practices uh, was for business management. Some of you are business owners in the room. And there are some best practices that this article suggested, such as engage your workers, reward effort, be vulnerable, stay committed, and so on. 
further. When it comes to education, some of you are either teachers, volunteer teachers, or you are a retired teacher. Uh, when it comes to education, uh, when it comes to teachers instructing children, they often speak about best practices, things that teachers do to, to help shape the next generation of children as they learn. And some of these best teacher best practices might be never lose your cool. That's a hard one. Keep clear boundaries. Uh, encourage, encourage, encourage your students. Teach with passion. Imagine trying to teach without passion. That's almost impossible, although it happens sometimes. So there might be teaching and educational best practices. Lastly, uh, I want to talk about best practices when it comes to one of my favorite hobbies, fishing, salmon fishing. I love to, to fish for salmon. Today, in this season of fall, happens to be prime for catching salmon. I caught four salmon two, Sunday, two Saturdays ago. It was a blast. And freezer is now full of meat. I am very happy and very pleased. Let me explain. If you also want to have salmon in your freezer, um, here's what you got to do. Some fishing best practices would be ensure that your, your line is not any thicker than 10-pound test, okay? Also, the lure that you need to use is that of a fluorescent pink, a fluorescent orange, or a fluorescent, fluore ah, can't say it, fluorescent green crock spoon. It's nice and heavy. You can cast it out a nice long ways. Then, after you cast this lure, you need to let it, don't reel it in immediately. You need to let it kind of float down, and then slowly, don't go too fast. Nope, you won't catch a salmon. Nice and slow. Nice. These are some of the essential best practices for actually, you see where I'm going with this? Essentially, we have best practices and an emphasis on them in various places in our lives. And what best practices do is they, they clarify what you really need to be doing in order to pursue your mission, whether it's in the workplace, uh, education, or with fishing. And thankfully, in the New Testament of the Bible, God makes it crystal clear for his disciples, for apprentices of Jesus, which practices we should be doing for his glory and for the good of other people in our world and in our church family. Today we're going to be looking at seven key discipleship best practices from Scripture. We're only going to get to five, okay? And before you feel snowed under, I know the fear, I know how this works. We go through these best practices, we look at ourselves, and we say, Kurt, you're just making, you're only doing this sermon to make me feel worse about myself than I already do. I am not doing these best practices well, maybe not at all. Okay, so thank you for making me feel terrible about myself here at church this morning. My goal is not to make you feel lousy. Believe me, I am failing in so many of these best practices all the time. But here's the thing. For the sake of those who are not yet connected to Jesus, who are currently headed not for heaven but rather for hell, people all around us who are not yet experiencing the joy and the benefits of being connected with Jesus in relationship well, because of that, we must pursue and practice these biblical best practices that God has given us for the sake of others and for the glory of God. All right, let's get into these best practices. The first one that I want to share with you is in your notes. A best practice, and this is key for a disciple of Jesus to do, is simply praise for lost people. Praise for lost people. The people in our lives, in our relationship circles who are not yet Christians, they need us to be praying for them. This is one of the most selfless, self-sacrificial things you can do for anybody. 
because you're doing it in secret, okay? And you're praying for their salvation. The Apostle Paul shares with us uh, some, some ideas for prayer, and we see him regaling and sharing his own conversion story in this passage in Acts 26, verses 18. And this gives us some ideas and clues about how to pray for lost people. And this is Jesus speaking to Paul in this moment. Quote, To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is from Jesus to Paul and now from Paul to us, and this is a framework for how you and I can pray for our lost loved ones, our lost co-workers, our lost neighbors. For example, this prayer may sound like just using this passage for guidance. Lord Jesus, would you open Bob's spiritual eyes? They're closed right now. Open his spiritual eyes that he would turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to you, God that he would receive forgiveness for his sins, which are, until those sins are forgiven, going to condemn him. So open his eyes. I want you to give Bob a place amongst the sanctified, that he would be cleansed to be a, become a part of God's family, your family, Lord. Lord, open his eyes, his spiritual eyes. Open Joe's eyes. Open Chris's eyes. Open Sally's eyes. Open their spiritual eyes to the gospel. I can't do that, God. I can't open their eyes spiritually. Only you can. Several years ago, and I share this story again. I want to be careful when it comes to sharing stories um, because it, it may cause people to think I'm sharing this story to glorify Kurt. I am not sharing that, hopefully, not for that reason. But a, a story is this simply, I had a family member several years ago uh, came into contact with him through marriage, and this is in and around 1999. And it became clear that this uh, family member was not a Christian, and, uh, but wasn't close to the idea. So that was interesting. And so what I did was, uh, very imperfectly and perhaps non-regularly, but over a period of years, started praying that God would open up his spiritual eyes, open his heart to the gospel. And over that course of time and years, gave him books. You know, a key book was... Uh, Case for Christ by Lee Strobel and Case for Faith by Lee Strobel as well. These are books that help non-Christians see that Christianity is, is a highly intellectual religion, the most, I would, I would argue, and the only true one. And he started reading these books, and we started having conversations spiritually as we would connect and, and have family time together. And eventually, his life hits the tank. It's like a Mack truck slapped up against, uh, against his life. And everything good was taken away in his life. Like, it just hit the bricks, man. I mean, it was ugly. And there was almost nothing good left in his life. It was all taken away. And God used that very troubling time in his life to help him to see, I got nothing. And if I don't have Christ either, I really got nothing. I need Jesus. I, need Je I want Christ. I want hope. I want purpose in my life. And lo and behold, he became a Christian, he got baptized, but you, you see, here's my point, it only took 11 or 12 years of praying, only. <laughs> it took that long, and, and it was amazing, and what a privilege. I am convinced, now, let me talk about my wife for a second. She had an, a family member herself uh, who in the last four years has finally become a Christian, but do you realize 
That was 20 years of prayer that finally, at God, in God's timing, he's the sovereign ruler of the universe, only he knows the right time and the right place. He opened this family member's spiritual eyes to the gospel. And now they're a Christian. Now they've been baptized. It's amazing. And so, again, it, it only took 20 years. Uh, Dwight Moody, I was reading his book recently, and he regaled the power of praying for lost people. And he shared numerous stories where it was like 70 years, 80 years. There was one instance of 90 years. It only took 90 years for someone finally to become a Christian. And I'm saying, I am convinced, one of the most unselfish, loving, sacrificial things that you and I can do as disciples of Jesus is to pray for someone's salvation. Plead with Jesus. Like, not just, oh, just help Bob become a Christian. No, you're pleading with them emotionally. Pleading with Jesus emotionally, saying, open their hearts, open their spiritual eyes. Because with, unless you open their spiritual eyes, it will not go well for them. We, we need you, Lord, to intervene. So, disciple of Jesus, Christian, I want you to think about two or three people who are not yet Christians in your life that you can take it upon yourself to pray for regularly, plead on their behalf, beg, beg Jesus, beg the Holy Spirit to open their eyes to the gospel that they would be saved and transformed. Is this a Google Calendar reminder that you need to set up? Did you know that there's a prayer app? It's free. It's actually pretty good. Highly recommend that. That's what reminds me to pray for the, the two or three non, not yet Christian people in my own life. We've got to remind each other of this and find creative ways of doing so. This is what disciples of Jesus do. Uh, pray for not yet Christian people. That's the first thing. The second best practice in your notes is that disciples of Jesus extend hospitality. Disciples of Jesus extend hospitality. The idea of opening up your home, your house, your apartment, your basement suite, your, your, your tent, your hut, whatever you live in, okay, to, to show the love of Jesus in a casual, informal kind of way. Uh, Romans 12, verse 13 speaks to this. We are instructed to, as disciples of Jesus, to contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Interestingly, when you trace back and look back and examine uh, biblical times, hospitality was greatly needed. You know why? Very often, people would travel around for business, and back then, you couldn't just hop in a car and go, you know, to Chilliwack. That would be a, a multi-day journey probably back in the day. And so it was very much needed because people often didn't, have, they weren't as wealthy as we are today generally. And so Christians would very often open up their homes to traveling business people because they couldn't afford the Holiday Inn. And this is what they did on a regular basis. But you know, today, uh, hospitality for us is usually just having someone over to your home, having them over for a meal, coffee and dessert, a play date, uh, or a barbecue. And tragically, in our modern-day culture, the idea of having someone over to your home for a meal or for coffee, dessert, play date, whatever, it almost never happens now. Almost never happens. Crazy. A few years ago, there was a young family that came to the church, and Tammy and I decided, you know, let's have them over for just Sunday afternoon, coffee, dessert. That's what it was. And we had them over. We had the kids over. We had no agenda, okay? I didn't bring a Bible and, and, you know, thump them over the head with the Bible or anything like that. I had no idea where they, they were at spiritually. Just had them over. Just come hang out with us. And they did. And it was, it was fascinating. We had a great time together. We're just having casual conversation, and we're asking questions, we're listening, 
and, and the kids are having fun with our kids. And by the, time of our, our, by the end of our time together, you know what they said to us? They said, this is really nice. We like this. This was a great idea to have people over to your home. That's a great idea to have people over to your home. And you see, at that point, I was confused. I was like, why would they say that? I mean, it sounds kind of a little bit strange, maybe. Why would they say that? But later I realized they said that because it may have been the first time that anyone other than family had them over to their home, like we did. I think that was the first time in their lives, and they loved it. And I'm not saying that to, wow, it was all us. No, it wasn't the cooking. It wasn't the coffee. But they just saw the good in getting connected with other people in the comfort of other people's homes. This is good. Here's the thing, though. If you look at our, exam- or look at our culture today and you examine it, uh, we live in a hospitality-deprived culture. Because of this, I believe we Christians, we should leverage hospitality for the sake of the gospel more now than ever before. Here's our opportunity to meet a need. People have never been lonelier in our society due to to technology and busier schedules, and we are more separated from one another than ever. So here's our chance to connect with more people and just use hospitality for the sake of the gospel, show the love of Christ in this most basic, simple way. I want to share a story about Randy Frazee. Maybe you know of Randy Frazee. Not a super well-known guy, uh, but he's been an inspiration for me as a pastor over the years. And I look up to him on this hospitality thing. One day, he and his wife, they got fed up. You know why they got fed up? They said, all our time is spent on the church, and we have no time for our neighbors, no time to reach out to not-yet-Christians, and we're just fed up with how church has taken over our lives. Okay, and this can happen. I get it. And so they decided, we are going to intentionally invest in our neighbors, get to know them by name, and do as much neighbor ministry as we can. And we're going to let maybe some church people suffer by shifting that time and investment over here instead of all on them. And so what they decided to do, we are going to have an open-door policy in our neighborhood. An open-door policy, yeah. And it all began with Randy. As it turns out, he's a banjo player, okay? Any banjo players? Frank, do you play banjo at all? You didn't pick it. We're waiting for you to pick it because I like the banjo, and uh, it's kind of cool. And anyhow, so he's a banjo player, and he thought, where should I start? So what he did after work, after his church work, he came home, had dinner. After dinner, he went on his, on his front porch, not the back porch, the front porch. Why? He's visible. You can see people, people driving by, people walking by, neighbors can see him. He's playing his banjo after dinner. That's all he's doing, and he's a good player, Okay. That got people's attention. Neighbors are like, hey, you played the banjo. They're walking by. Hey, that's kind of cool. That struck up conversations. And eventually, that led to relationships and friendships with neighbors. And next thing you know, there's guitar players there. There's, you know, I think a conga guy there as well. They're all playing music on the front of his porch. And then they're inviting neighbors, getting to know each other. They're having barbecues for the neighbors on their street. And, 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 and eventually, this open-door policy, what this looked like was... People, neighbors would drop by, just enter their home, open up the fridge, help themselves to a beverage or a snack, sit down, have a sandwich on the couch in their own home. I mean, okay, I'm not suggesting you should do that, but this is what they did. You have to respect that kind of desire for mission because you see, you know what that led to? That led to multiple neighbors being baptized 
in their church. Just because they took it upon, one family, one household took it upon themselves to take an open-door policy. I'm not suggesting this is what we should all do, but it's really, let's leverage hospitality for the sake of our, of our for the sake of the gospel, for people who are not yet connected with Jesus. Here's our opportunity because people are more disconnected and lonely than ever before. We can do this. We can do this, but it takes that kind of intentionality and purpose and scheduling and mindset. You know, break out the banjo, break out the drum, break out the guitar, whatever it takes to, to reach out to our neighbors. And so how can we do that in a practical way this coming week? And how do we implement this in our schedule on a regular basis? These are essential best practices for disciples of Jesus. That's the second one. The third one I want to share with you is this. Third disciple best practice in your notes is simply invites people to church. Invites people uh, to church. Interestingly, thanks to social media, uh, people are often making recommendations. Uh, you got to eat at this restaurant. Uh, you need to, if you don't have a family doctor, go to this family doctor over here. He, he or she is awesome. Uh, Bob, you got to go, uh, you know, check out this fitness trainer that has changed my life and they've motivated me and, and got me in shape. And, 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 and we make recommendations. You got to see this movie. We do it all the time, making recommendations all the time, very often. And likewise, uh, disciples of Jesus, we are, in a much more important kind of sense, all about making recommendations. It's more invitations. Invitations to, to just come and, and experience our church family. Family and friends and coworkers, neighbors, hey, just, just come sometime. Come on a Sunday morning, experience Mercy Hill Church. And the idea behind it is, how can I keep Jesus to myself? How can I keep the salvation that Jesus has brought about in my life to myself? How can I keep the transformation and, and substantial rubber-hits-the-road change to myself? How can I keep all the blessings that Jesus brings into my life to myself? That would be just cruel. And we're just saying, hey, check it out. Here's, here's our church family. Just, just begin by checking, checking things out here. All right, this is what we do. This is one of the most loving things we can do the idea of regularly inviting people just come come experience hang out with us we're very broken imperfect people but look what, look who christ is and look what he's done for us and look how he's changing us and experience the love that we have for him and one another here at this church and here's what happens the great thing is we see a bit of an example that paul gives us of what can happen to a not yet christian when they come to a church worship gathering like we have on sunday mornings he describes this, 1 Corinthians 14, 24, and 25. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. We have seen this. Not everybody, but at various times and various people over the years, we have seen this happen where people come and they say, God is among you. And they don't even know what God is per se. But they come and they experience God himself and his love here. They experience conviction of sin and they realize life is not about me. It's about Jesus. I got to get on board with him. Look what he's done for me on the cross to save me and change me. And they're just convicted and they say, I want that. I want that Christ. 
And that can happen, and that happens supernaturally. The Holy Spirit does wonderful things as the Word is preached, and as the Word is preached through the worship team singing and leading us in worship. Spiritual, wonderful things happen when we gather like we are gathering here now. And we have seen this over the years. And that's why we encourage you and urge you, just invite, just put it out there. You know, they say it takes about seven to ten times for someone that you're inviting to church to actually show up. And I get it. If I'm a not-yet-Christian, I'm a little skeptical about church. You know, you hear some things. Ironically, there's a lot more good things happening in a church than bad things. It's all, only the bad stuff that gets all the, the media and the press, okay? There's so much good that happens in churches, and we, we have got to, to just say, hey, just come, check. And it may not be the right timing. They may come and they may go. That's okay. But we, we want to at least offer them the opportunity to experience the love of Christ. I want to share something with you as I'm off message here and off notes here. This is a quote from Tom Rainer. And he shares something really amazing. And he says this when it comes to this idea of inviting people to church. Among the unchurched, those are people who don't go to church, among the unchurched, 55% said that they would attend church if invited by a family member. And 51% said they would attend church if invited by a friend or neighbor. These numbers are staggering. The opportunities are incredible. So do you see what this means? This is America, okay, so let's consider that. But let's pretend this is also the case in Canada. More than one in two people will come to church when you invite them. Those are pretty good odds. One in two, 50, over 50% odds. Furthermore, studies have shown something else that's very striking and very fascinating to me. You might think that people must come to church because the pastor invited them. Okay, it must be the pastor or the priest. You would be completely wrong if you believe that. Okay, we are terrible at effectively inviting people to church. There's a general stat on why they've asked, why did, why did you come, why did you start attending a church? And the, the stat is 86% start coming. Why? Because a friend invited them. Now, did you notice how many people started attending church because the priest or the pastor invited them? A measly 6%. You know how depressing that is? That is so depressing. And I'll deal with that my, on my own time. Don't feel bad for me. I'll just, i got to pray about that. But what this means is, everyone here who is not a pastor, you have way more potential to reach out than I do. Everybody here who is not a pastor, you have a better than 50% chance that when you invite your family members, when you invite your coworkers, when you invite your, your neighbors and your friends to church, 50% odds, they'll come. And I believe God, I really believe this, I believe God particularly blesses and empowers non-pastors supernaturally to reach out. You see, all we're doing is, we're just, have you heard this phrase before? I like this phrase, it's overused, yes, but it's good. We're just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. One beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. We're just one sinner saved by grace telling another sinner where to find the grace through faith in Christ. That's it. We're just saying, just come and see. Here's this person. And we're just trying to very imperfectly live out the ways of Jesus. And we're all screwed up. We're all messed up. 
We're all need, in need of daily help from Jesus. So just join us as we all seek Jesus together as very imperfect people. That's all we're doing. One beggar telling another beggar where to find bread, bread, spiritual bread that will nourish their souls. A fourth disciple best practice as we transition to the next one is this is what disciples do. Share the gospel. Just share the gospel. You know, when it comes to news, we hear news all the time. I think Trump has sort of made famous the idea of fake news. And a lot of the news that we're hearing is fake. Some of it's true, some of it's fake. Social media has fueled the whole fake news thing. It's just, it's a lot of news. And because we are inundated with news all the time, what do we do with that? We very often shut off the news. We shut, shut our ears to any news. And so it's difficult to know what to believe. We don't know what's true or what's not, what's, what's real, what's fake, right? But the Bible is clear. The gospel is the ultimate news. It is the most truthful news in the universe. The gospel, the good news about Jesus, what he's done for us and accomplished for us, the gospel is not only the most important news in the universe, the gospel is the most powerful news in the universe. This gospel news about Jesus actually has the power within it to change someone's eternal direction from hell to heaven. That's amazingly powerful news. And so because of that news being so powerful and so important, how can Kurt keep that news to myself and not share it with those who need Christ? How dare I hold that to me and me alone and not share that? There are far more people than we realize in our workplaces, in our streets, in our families, in our circle of relationships, more than we realize who are actually seeking God in some way. They're actually looking for purpose, looking for truth, looking for meaning. Something within them is saying, there's got to be a God. There's got to be ultimate truth here somewhere. And a quick example of this is found in Acts chapter 16, verses 30 and 31. Uh, in this story, we see Paul and Silas, they're in jail for their faith, for preaching the gospel. God sends an earthquake. Okay, then they're, they're, they're made free by the earthquake. And the Philippian jailer, okay, is... is is, is responding to them after this earthquake occurs and they find themselves out of the chains. And here's what it says, Acts 16, 30 and 31. Then he brought them out, that's the Philippian jailer, and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Do you see that question there? He's got a question. What must I do to be saved? How do Paul and Silas respond? They say, believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. No doubt, beyond that, they probably spoke of Jesus. He lived your perfect life for you in your place. Jesus died on the cross for your sins in your place as your perfect sacrifice. And Jesus rose again um, to defeat Satan, sin, and death. They probably got to more of the gospel details. But the bottom line is, do you see how these men were ready to share the gospel when the opportunity arose? And that opportunity was then, and they shared, and that guy and his household became Christians that day and were baptized. They were ready to share the gospel. A quick story. A few years ago, I used to be a part of the Cloverdale Rotary Club, and uh, I have since quit for other reasons. Uh, but it was a great opportunity for a period of time because I made relationships uh, with some key people in the area. And I enjoyed it. And interestingly, there was one guy there who joined the club. 
and he, he and I really connected kind of right off the bat. He was kind of fascinated with how I was a pastor of a church that we started with a team of people, and he just found that kind of fascinating, so that was interesting. One day, after the club meeting was over, he says, hey, Kurt, let's, let's meet up for coffee. Let's do Starbucks sometime. And generally, when someone says Starbucks, I'm there. I love Starbucks, probably too much. And we decided to meet for coffee. And so in advance of that, uh, before that meeting occurred, I realized I better pray for him, for me. Jesus, please give me an opportunity, a natural segue to speak about the gospel, about you in some way. And Jesus, empower me to share the gospel with this guy winsomely, gently, respectfully, lovingly, and boldly. Help me to do that. So there's advanced prayer. Well, what do you think happened when we met that day at Starbucks? Yes, we had some chit-chat. Yes, he taught me about some stuff about social media. He's quite a tech whiz. And then, sure enough, do you think it was me bringing up the gospel? Hey, friend, let me speak about Jesus here. No, it was not. He brought it up. And he says something like, point blank, hey, Kurt, you know, how does a person get right with God and make a connection with God? How does that happen? Something along those lines. And, you know, in that moment, I'm just, you know, the jaw drops, and I'm joyfully flabbergasted, you know? And I'm just like, there he goes again. There he goes again. He's paving the way ahead. God's very often at work before we even get there. It's amazing. And so, of course, I shared the gospel with him. Very imperfectly, you know? But it was a thrill. Like, if you're looking for more thrill and excitement in your life, pray along those lines. Pray for opportunities to share the gospel and then share the gospel. That is thrilling. And very often you'll be rejected for what you say. That's a thrill too, actually. It's kind of exciting. But this is exciting stuff. You know, when it comes to sharing the gospel, one of the greatest fears that Christians have is that, sharing the gospel. Almost the number one fear is sharing your faith about Jesus with those who are not yet Christians. And why is that? Why is that? It is because many Christians are afraid of losing their jobs if they speak about Jesus too much. And another key fear is they're afraid of what people will think of them. They'll think I'm a religious fanatic, that I'm this weird Christian guy, you know, or lady, whatever it is. They just think I'm weird spiritually. And I'm just not going to go there. I don't want to put my job on the line. I don't want to put my reputation on the line so I don't share the gospel. That's kind of very often how it works, right? But my question is, isn't the risk worth it? I don't think you're going to lose your job in most cases. But even if you did, is, is the risk not worth that? Isn't your friend's eternal destination worth that risk? I mean, how do you put a dollar figure on someone's eternal life or not? You know, you just can't. It is worth the risk. It is worth the risk of you losing friendships or losing your reputation. It is worth the risk. Jesus risked it all. I mean, it wasn't a risk. It was his plan. But he laid down his life for us. He was willing to be beaten for, his, for what he was doing for us. And if he was willing to do that, why should we not be willing to do the same? I mean, there is no better news. There is no more helpful news than the news of the gospel and what Christ has done and accomplished for us. Uh, the, you know, like, there's just no better thing that we can do for people than to share the gospel. That is a key disciple best practice. There is one last uh, disciple best practice I want to share with you 
uh, and that is this. I'm just going to give you the last two very quickly at the very end, but the fifth one I'm going to speak a little bit about is simply this, disciples' immediate family. Disciples, you know what that word means in that context? Training. You're training your immediate family in the ways of Jesus, okay? Uh, And that's where you start. That's where you start if you have a family. If you're single, then you start with your extended family and your close friends. But anyhow, if you have a family, you disciple your immediate family. That is key to the place that you start. And here's what this means. Uh, Proverbs 22, verse 6, uh, speaks to the idea of how parents are to disciple their kids. Uh, 22, verse 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, some people, when they hear that verse, it's very common and well-known uh, proverb when it comes to parenting, a Christian parenting, you know what they say to themselves? They think to, to themselves, I know the exception. I know somebody, the parents tried to teach him to, to be a Christian and teach him about Jesus, and then he rejected it all when he became an adult. What do, you, what do I say to that? I say, yes, it happens. Yes, it happens. What you need to know about Proverbs is that they're not a formula, like if you just do this, then this will happen. That's not how Proverbs work. Proverbs are general observations about how it generally goes, okay? So most of the time. So in most cases, when a parent uh, trains up their child in the ways of Jesus, most times, eventually, it may take a couple of decades or more, eventually they'll come around to following Jesus in most cases. And that makes sense. I mean, statistically, time and again, it is proven no one influences their kids more than parents, the mom or dad. No one influences your kids than you or your spouse or the other parent. And so, and for good or for bad, by the way, some horrible things have happened that parents have done to kids. So no one influences your kid for good or bad than parents. And so here we are. Let us leverage even more than we have done already. Let us leverage this God-given gift of influence that he has given us as parents for good. And so therefore, I know many of you are doing this kind of stuff. Keep on doing it. Let me encourage you and celebrate what you are doing for your kids. Reading your kids Bible stories in a winsome, interesting way. Uh, Praying with your kids, teaching them how to pray in in interesting ways. Teaching your kids uh, how to memorize scripture in interesting ways. Don't make it a a big drag. That won't be motivating for them. You got to add some creativity to this. Catechizing your kids, question and answer, basic theology. I have some resources I can share with you on that end. And so there's one more aspect of discipling your kids that's essential. Have you thought about this, parents? Have you thought about how am I I going to train my son or daughter how to reach out to help other kids meet Jesus? How can I train my kids to invite their friends to church? How can I train my kids to share their faith in Christ with those who are not yet Christians in their school relationships? Do you see? There's one more aspect as I'm I'm landing the plane fairly soon here, so bear with me. Uh, Husbands and wives, let me speak to those who are married here. Don't forget about discipling each other. Don't forget you need each other in this walk with Christ. Read some scripture together and remind each other to read some scripture together. It doesn't matter almost where it is in the Bible. Just read some Bible together on a regular basis, if not at least weekly. Pray together, if at least weekly. You know, make that spiritual connection, and that will protect your marriage from all kinds of problems in the future. I mean, that is essential. Your kids need you 
spouses, mom and dad, to be praying together, reading scripture together. Is it happening? And that's not a guilt bomb. Just what can you do to start making this happen in your marriage? Just make it happen. Just start somewhere. I must close by giving you the final two best practices. They are in your notes. Participates in discipleship with others. That's one-to-one discipleship, community group involvement, life within the church or even outside of the church. And then lastly, helps the poor. We do several things for the poor in Cloverdale here. I'm going to leave it there. Let me just challenge you. As you think about these best practices, uh, how can you, how can I, how can we depend on the grace of God to put into practice these things so that more people will meet Jesus, be saved by him, and transformed by him. Let's, let's pray. God, thank you for making it clear what you would have us do as your disciples, Lord Jesus. We need your help with these seven best practices, and we need your power. We fail. We forget. We get busy. We get distracted, and we are sorry. Would you forgive us for forgiving or forgetting your ways and what's really important to you for mission and and to reach out and to help others get in on all that you've given us. And and so we need your help. We need your power. We need your reminding that without you, people are, it's not going to go well for them. So burden our hearts with compassion for those who are not yet connected with you. And I pray that that would actually translate into action. Lord, we would have nothing, nothing at all without your saving work on the cross. And we come and gather to remember through this memorial meal called communion to remember your blood shed for us, your body broken for us, and we are grateful. Through Christ we pray. Amen.